Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you today? Did you drink any water? If not, please drink some water. For me, how have you been? What have you been doing to get through these odd times we're living in? One thing that has been helping me cope through these weeks and all this sitting at my desk is stretching. It sounds so obvious to some of you, but I was really bad about it for a long time and I've become obsessed with stretching every morning and doing yoga. It feels so amazing. It activates a few molecules of serotonin and I'm actually getting pretty flexible, which is cool. It's the little things, you know. It's currently very dark and rainy here in LA. Perfect for telling some scary stories, don't you agree? This week ended up a little shorter than I had intended. I picked three stories, thinking I would have almost too much material, and well, I counted wrong, because once I compiled them, I realized that this was not a satisfactory amount of content. <sighs> I hope you can forgive me. I'll make it up next time, I pinky promise. And I mentioned on my Turn of the Screw episode earlier this week, but for those of you who didn't hear, I was featured as a narrator for the podcast, A Darker Tale. So if you wanted me to read you an extra story this week, fear not, you can find A Darker Tale on all podcast apps. I read the story, The Northern Trail, which I believe is still the latest episode. It's a fantastic show, by the way, very underrated. And if you're looking for some extra spooky content, I highly recommend it. Also, I wanted to say thank you so much to three spooked girls. This week, they were interviewed by Jeremy at Podcasts We Listen To, and Tara mentioned me as her Desert Island podcast. That made me so happy. I even played that bit out loud for my husband to hear so I could brag about my moment of fame. If you haven't subscribed to Podcasts We Listen To, it's also available on all podcast apps. And coming up, I believe next week or the week after, I'll let you know you'll hear a familiar voice also being interviewed. Again, thank you so much, Three Spooked Girls. Go follow them, go subscribe to them, go listen to their show. You mentioning me as your Desert Island podcast piqued Jeremy's curiosity, and he sought me out all because of you, and I got to be interviewed too, so thank you so much. Okay, let's start the show, shall we? This first story is by Nasia Parveen, you remember her from her story, The Possession, on the last Brevity episode. This is a fun little tale called Atypical. Ours was a typical story. We fell in love and then got married. Love was not something new to me. Neither was she the first woman in my life. In this fleeting life of mine, I have fallen in love numerous times and have been heartbroken, not at any time. <laughs> yes, for me, love was something to be enjoyed as long as it lasted. Think of it like drinking a glass of vintage wine. Sip little by little, relish it as much as you can, and end it with a burp of satisfaction. You might be tempted to preach that a person like me should never get married, that he should remain a bachelor for life. Believe me, I also shared your opinion. I wanted to live my life as the birds you see soaring up in the sky. I wouldn't call marriage 
necessarily a burden, but to me it meant a shitload of responsibilities which a dozen of me could not fulfill. I was happy in my own bubble, carefree and careless. However, yes, you guessed it right, this is the point where every unfortunate narrator will tell you how his or her life took a turn contrary to his or her expectations. Married life, I had to lead, and after this, I knew my life would never be the same again. I have nothing too extraordinary to tell, really. Like most eligible bachelors who happen to be the offspring of helicopter moms, not only did I face constant carping by my beloved maman as to why at the age of 35 I am still unable to enter the connubial life, but also have been subjected to hear the inexhaustible praises of eligible maidens. Things took a nasty turn after my 36th birthday, and I was told that she will leave me out of her will if I fail to fulfill her wish. And as I was an obedient son, and for the first time my widowed mother really asked something of me, I complied with her and presented my then-girlfriend as a potential daughter-in-law. I shouldn't say I was too unhappy about the whole situation. After all, it wasn't I who jilted my previous girlfriends, rather I was the one who got deserted by them. So, on a gloomy, rainy day, my marriage took place. It was just a typical wedding ceremony. Ironically, the weather didn't reflect my inner emotions. Well, now that I think about it, I was actually quite thrilled. New things would always excite me, and here I was entering into a completely brand new realm. The first few months went by quite well, I guess. Frankly speaking, I wasn't finding married life quite so bad as I expected. Though I knew her since one year prior to our marriage, I was discovering new angles from which I could look at her. She had no complaints against me unlike my other girlfriends, the thing which I liked about her the most and which kind of endeared her to me, I think. I can still remember that night, when both of us sat in the veranda under the cloudless, limpid sky where the moon was enjoying its full freedom. She had insisted we turn off all the lights and lamps. And there we were, sitting amidst the cool breeze, the moon sometimes cast its glow upon her face, and her intense eyes were looking at me eagerly. You have to believe me when I say that, at that moment, I truly felt I could love this woman. Not like my previous girlfriends, but like that which we only read in books nowadays. So what happened after that? My fellow passenger asks. As the Victorian novels would suggest, you should be living happily ever after with your dazzling heroine. I could have. But wouldn't that be too typical? The truth is, I was ready to accept that typicality as long as she cooperated. But whatever, I returned to my story. You see, everything would have gone by well if I hadn't spotted her with him. You know, 
infidelity has seeped so seamlessly among our generation that I was prepared to accept it if I ever happened to be the victim. But the emotion I felt that day is difficult to describe. A pang of hurt, anger, or sorrow? I don't know. The thing I do know is that as the days went by, I could feel an agitated creature humming and drumming inside my brain. My nights were sleepless and my days became restless. Only one question began to haunt me day and night. Why doesn't she just leave me? Could it be just because of my money? Now, I'll tell you one thing. The thing I despise the most in this universe is someone taking advantage of me. No, I won't tolerate that shit. Hence, I began to think, to contemplate over how to get out of this mess. The first step was to confront her with the truth. But, what do you know? <laughs> Hardly did I begin to form the question when off she went, crying to my mother. And what followed afterwards will be such a bore to describe. That night, when we were dining together, a fishbone got stuck in my throat. I was coughing and choking. My dutiful wife offered a glass of water, promptly enough, but... The problem arose when out of the corner of my eye, I could perceive a subtle, yes, and really subtle, almost microscopic smile pasted on her face, but which was absolutely enough to boil my veins with anger. I made my decision then and there. Let me guess. You decided to kill her. My companion chimes in again. A betrayed husband, plotting to kill his adulterous wife. Nothing can be more typical nowadays. Life itself is mundanely typical, wouldn't you agree? Anyway, if I was going to commit murder, I needed three simple things. Method, order, and most importantly, innovation. The first two things I always prided myself on having, but I'll confess, I was really having problems regarding the last one. I mused and mused as to how her life should cease to exist. A gas leak? But that would damage my beautiful furniture. A leap from the roof? But what if someone sees me? Poisoning her would certainly end me up in jail. So, what did you do? After all, these are the typical ways to end a life. Hey, aren't you scared of being alone with a potential killer? I ask, genuinely curious. Well, 
personally, I think you're bluffing. To begin with, why would a killer confess his crimes to someone? I just feel like you're bullshitting with me. My companion proclaims proudly. I look out of the window. Outside, in the pitch black of the night, the trees look like sentries awaiting to take sinners to their king for execution. The train slowly pulls over to a station. What if I change your mind? But for now, can you hold on to the suitcase while I go take a piss? It's very precious to me. I can trust you, right? Of course. Take your time. No need to be quick. I wave to my companion as I get down from the train, wandering along the platform, humming a tune to myself. I begin to think. Human curiosity is a dangerous thing. Once it's peaked, it'll stop at nothing to act out its will. I am almost certain that my fellow passenger, like Pandora, will take at least a peek inside the suitcase. I wonder, I really do wonder what his reaction will be when he sees the 57 pieces of my mutilated body. Killing your husband, along with your lover, and disposing the body under a train seat. So typical of her. This next story is short but sweet, and it's by Nova Karen, called Immortal. The first cryogenic freezing. It would be the greatest discovery for all of humankind. Imagine all the remarkable things we could study about the dormant human brain. Cryogenic freezing has proved to be successful for a majority of the plant and animal species, but what about the human brain? It was one of the greatest inventions of the Almighty. Imagine a world free of disease, death, and even aging. That day is inevitably coming, and cryogenics is the best way of getting there. Volunteers are welcome. This was our heart-winning advertisement, which was sent to the local newspaper about the Cryogenic Institute. We had many people who were eager to know about this type of freezing, but not even a single volunteer. It was my idea at first, and my fellow colleagues were also very enthusiastic about this type of freezing. It had never been performed before, and America could take credit for being the first country to ever perform cryogenic freezing on an actual human being, and not just plants or animals like rats and guinea pigs. It was the 19th of June, 1965, when we had aired this advertisement, but since we didn't get a volunteer, I, Dr. James Bedford, decided to take things into my own hands. The next day, I told all my colleagues that the world's first cryogenic freezing would take place as they would freeze my body and revive it in the later future. I felt a bit weird while saying this, but then felt that only I could do it, as I had lived a contented life, I had enjoyed my travels, 
loved my wife, and cared for my children, who were now all grown up. I would also be the best one, as I had recently found out that I had renal cell carcinoma, and no amount of chemotherapy or usage of any drug could save me. I had not told my wife about this, but when I did, she began behaving extremely distant, and I heard her talking to people behind my back and telling them that the cancer had gone to my head and that I was going crazy. <laughs> that Ruby, she never believed any of my ideas and kept calling me a madman for all the 73 years of my life, as long as I was married to her. I could never believe this reaction of hers. No matter how much I tried to change her mind on allowing me to freeze myself, she did not agree and took it up as a case in the court. I had set aside at least $100,000 for my cryogenic freezing and most of the money was used up in court. The end, I won the case and thus cryogenic freezing also became legal, providing the patient was legally dead. The money I had saved was gone, but thanks to my life, I could afford the posthumous freezing. All my children found this idea very resourceful and were fine with me being frozen cryogenically. So I took the decision and decided that I would be frozen until some particular day in the future. When I talked about my condition to the medical group of doctors, they said that this type of freezing could even cure my incurable cancer. The date for my freezing was set, and my medical team included Dr. Dante Brunel, Dr. Robert Prohoda, and Dr. Robert Nelson. They explained all the medical procedures and proceedings. On the 10th of January, 1967, when I went in for my monthly checkup, I found out that my kidney cancer had spread to my lungs, and that I had to be admitted into the hospital so that, in case I die, my body could be taken for the cryogenic freezing immediately. I said all my goodbyes, and went to the hospital a bit ecstatic. The pain kept increasing as the cancer got worse, but it did not affect my brain or my heart at all, which seemed a little weird. By the 11th of the month, I started having revelations of my death, and even heaven but did not give up hope, when suddenly, the heartbeat monitor stopped beeping, and I was unable to open my eyes. According to the doctors, I had died on the 12th of January, 1967. As soon as I reached the institute, my body was frozen at once to prevent decay. Then came the containment unit, which was such a comfortable little capsule. As soon as I was put into the containment unit and they had carried out all the procedures effectively, I heard a dozen party poppers bursting and a huge party starting as the world's first cryogenic freezing had been completed successfully. Yes, they had just performed the first cryogenic freezing, and I had absolutely no way of letting them know that I was still alive. This last story of the evening requires a teeny bit of homework, if you will. If you go back to, if you hadn't listened to the episode titled Endless Black, episode 94, there's a story there called The Reuben by Vanessa Kennedy. It's the second story, 20 minutes in. 
I, if you remember correctly, it ended a little abruptly and I was kind of surprised, but I was so happy to hear that there's a sequel and Vanessa sent it over to me and that's what I'm going to read you now. This is The Reuben, part two. Fear boiled Jordan's insides as the chain crinkled again and slid against the cement slabs. Most of the saliva that Jordan was forcing down his throat poured out of his sweat glands. His shirt clung to his back like a blood-sucking leech. His body shook as the fear soon controlled his appendages. The fear of the unknown was almost as frightening as the desk clerk that was roaming the room above him. Maybe the chains were just blowing around like a wind chime from a draft. Or maybe another non-frightening alternative. It didn't matter how hard Jordan tried to convince himself that he was safe, or at least safer, in the basement. He knew he was still in danger. Whatever or whoever was on the other end of that sliding chain was dangerous. Even after he acknowledged the fact that he was indeed still in danger, a morbid sense of curiosity swept over him. Even though all his senses were on fire and his legs were frozen, he still had an uncooperative urge to venture forward, run through him. With no light except for the light from the floor slats, Jordan weighed his options. At least here he didn't have to worry about the desk clerk, potentially. Jordan sighed loudly, which bounced off the exposed walls. His sigh ricocheted off the walls like a ball in a pinball machine. Jordan fought the urge to duck as the noise came back towards him. That urge he was able to overcome. As an answer to his sigh, the chain rattled again. The vibrations from the rattling links were carried through the floor and up Jordan's legs. Jordan gave in to the urge and he gave a painful shove against the dresser. A few inches he had pulled it away from the wall wasn't enough space for him to get a good look inside. The dresser shot forward on its square legs. Jordan knew if he did that again he would either break the dresser or he would break himself more than he had already. But his first attempt was a fruitful one. The dresser had moved just enough for Jordan to peer inside the newly founded chamber. Once again, Curiosity nipped at him like a dog, which only grew when he realized that everything had gone silent. The banging, the chain rattling, the thudding from above, everything. With the realization that the thudding from above had stopped, and the desk clerk could potentially come down there with him, made Jordan's legs finally work. He stepped forward into the chamber quickly. It wasn't until Jordan reopened his eyes he realized he had closed them. He felt his pupils dilate as they realized that there was light. A solitary, naked bulb swung from the ceiling, giving off a dull yellow glow. The bulb was either old or not fully screwed in to make the lights glow so dull. With the newly found light source, Jordan observed his new surroundings. Regret immediately pounded his brain as he realized what he had stumbled upon. Nothing could have prepared him for what he saw in front of him. 
no horror movie or slasher film could come anywhere close to the reality that he was living. A metal table sat in the middle of the room with someone on it. Their immobile hands and feet were strapped down with large, worn-out leather straps. For a mere second, Jordan was glad that the table was occupied. Medical equipment and instruments sat on a nearby table. Some clean, while others were dull and bloodied. Scalpel blades sat loosely on the table covered with various layers of drying blood. Medical saws with chipped and missing teeth hung on the wall, cased in blood as well. Bile rose from Jordan's stomach. Jars of unknown substances were filed on an overhead shelf. One had been knocked over and, drip by drip, its liquid escaped down the wall and onto the hot water pipe, which made the liquid sizzle and bubble. Then, the chain moved again. Jordan's attention was turned towards the far right corner. Hidden by a shadow, a man sat hunched over in a cage, like an animal. His skin had lost all its pinky flesh color and was replaced by a dull, gray, sickly tinge. The man slid over closer to the cage's bars, making the light hit his crippled form. An iron collar had attached around the man's neck. Gaunt, empty eyes stared out at Jordan. An arm jetted over through the bars, begging for help. Realization dawned as Jordan looked back at the table. The hands and feet on the table were his. A wrapped bloody stub waved at Jordan. Jordan could feel the pain in his own appendages. Jordan could see the man's mouth open to speak, but all that came out was wispy gargles. The use of words had fallen on deaf ears when this poor man was attached. All he had left were his involuntary screams of anguish. Jordan was probably the first person that this man had seen in a while. There was something about the man that looked... familiar, but Jordan couldn't place it. He stepped closer, weary of the man, to get a better look. The stub waved more as Jordan walked closer. At first Jordan thought it was an excitement, but from the look on the man's face... Jordan stopped. He listened for the reason why the caged man had made him stop. And then he heard it. Boots on the ladder. Unlike Jordan, this new visitor used the ladder. Jordan and the caged man locked eyes. In a silent agreement and understanding, Jordan ran. He knew that he would be back. He ran past the bloody table. He ran past the dresser and swung hard left. There had to be another way out. Jordan ran blindly down the dark hall. Whoever was on the ladder had descended into the basement and most likely could hear Jordan's ragged breaths as he ran. As he ran, his legs and arms stung more as dirty, musty basement air whizzed by the open cuts. As he ran, he tried to make sense of everything. The caged man had been the one making the banging. He must have been placed near an air duct. Using his chain, he banged out an SOS through the motel's vents. Jordan's education hadn't included Morse code, so the man's bangs and pauses meant nothing to him. As much as Jordan tried, 
Loki still couldn't make sense of the radio and sign misfunctions. Yes, both could have been just a misfunction and a coincidence, but maybe it had been a warning. Maybe the caged man wasn't the only victim. At that point, Jordan would believe just about anything just to be able to get out. Determination bloomed inside Jordan. He was determined that he wouldn't be the next victim and to get out. But that determination soon faded as Jordan felt large hands on his shoulder yanking him back. Jordan's attempts to fight became useless as his assailant began dragging him backward. Jordan's sock feet slid painfully across the slabs, every so often catching on a crack. Every swing of the arm and a roll of the shoulder just made Jordan tired, and the grip on him tightened. Jordan shouted demands that got no response. Jordan was yanked into the nightmare-fueled room once again. This time, there were no severed hands and feet tied to the table. There were no bloody tools on the table. There was no wounded man locked in a cage in the corner. Jordan blinked, confused. While he was in his confused, immobile state, his assailant threw him on the table. In a matter of seconds, it was Jordan's wrists and ankles that were strapped onto the cold metal table. Jordan pleaded with the very real man above him. You should have stayed in your room, was all the man said before lifting the saw. And Jordan's last realization before everything went black was the reason why the man looked so familiar was because it was him. He closed his eyes, preparing for the first prick of the saw's teeth. When none came, Jordan reopened his eyes to find himself back in his car. Bright, blinding light from an oncoming car and its loud horn made Jordan swerve back into his room. How long had he been asleep? Had he fallen asleep? The blue dot happily slid along its directed path on his working GPS. Soon, a sign flashed in front of him which made Jordan speed down the road as his own fear controlled his foot on the gas pedal. Next exit. The Reuben. Thanks for listening. I hope you all have a lovely evening. And when it comes to Patreon, this is where I always do my Patreon stuff. Um, I will have something new soon, probably another part of Frankenstein. We will get through it, people. I promise. It's just kind of a, now that I've started that and turned of the screw, it's just a whole lot of 19th century literature coming at me. Anyway, also, by the way, I've had so many, I'm so, so like, blessed and fortunate to have so many of you subscribing to my Patreon. I know a lot of people are looking for extra content these days, so I'm really trying to provide it. But also this is a little different. This is a little off subject, or I guess it's not. Sorry. I usually write a little script for the end and I didn't today, just winging it. So excuse me. (laughs) But I got an, uh, um, an email, a message on Patreon from one of my lovely patrons who asked, me not to say their name on the show and 
you can always opt out of that. I think there's actually an option in Patreon, but if you ever, if for some reason that doesn't work or it doesn't get to me, um, feel free to, once you sign up, shoot me a message and be like, please don't say my name because I totally understand privacy is a big thing, you know? So if you don't want me to say your name, just let me know as soon as you subscribe, shoot me a message and just be like, Hey, please don't say my name. Please, please, please. Um, you don't have to beg that much. I, I just won't. You, you just be like, Hey, don't say my name. I'm paying you not to say my name. Um, anyway, there are a few names this week, by the way, for Patreon, and I cannot for the life of me pronounce them. And I looked a few of them up and Google is not my friend this week and is like, no, nah, we're not going to tell you how to pronounce it either. So please forgive me again, like I say every week. So a huge, 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 huge thank you and big hug, big giant hug over the airwaves to Cassia, Natalie Viegas, BDH9294, Skylar Muse, Soul Angelica Gronas, Lisa A. Hartwick Williams, Colleen O'Keefe, Morgan Vandeveer, Caroline Ruvalcaba, Ruvalcaba. Wow, I can't believe I can't say that name. That was literally the name of my counselor in high school. I'm so sorry, Carolina. Or Carolina. Could be either. I'm so sorry. I just fudged up your whole name. I apologize. Lisa W., Chrissy, Natasha Marsh, Shauna Vandera, Tim Tanuka, Titer17, Erica Coomer, Angela Valentine, Daniel McGee, Joseph Russo, and Jacqueline Felix. Thank you so, 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 so much. I'm so happy to have all of you. I've had a lot more people joining the Facebook page and actually like asking questions about Patreon, not to me, like from fellow patrons, like, Hey, what's your favorite guided nightmare? And what's your this and this and that. And it's so much fun to see. Like I said, I love Facebook. It's so far, it's just been the most active community of all of you. And it's been amazing. You have no idea the feeling it gives me to see that I've helped bring all of you together and we all have all these cool, you know, common interests and things. (laughs) Anyway, um, you can send submissions to scary to sleep at gmail.com or you can go to the website scary to sleep.com and use the contact form there if you feel better using that. Um, you can find me on Reddit, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook. I think that's all of them. Just Google the show. You'll find me. If you have a particular question about if I'm on a certain platform, just send me an email and I'll answer. Um, I believe that's all for tonight. Um, yeah, I will see you all next week. Um, again, turn of the screw. I think I mentioned it's going to be about four more episodes of turn of the screw. Um, and, but you know, we all saw how bad I do math tonight. So could be three, could be five, you know, we'll we'll see (laughs) anyway. Yeah. Um, follow the show and all the stuff email me. I think I said all that. See, this is why I need a script. I just go off. I even deleted a big chunk where I kind of ranted for a little bit and you're welcome because without a script, I just rant. Um, all right, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.
Our faith is our shield. If Altman was divinely inspired, why did he have to die? Our sword. Back off! Stay back! And our guide. There are those who will infiltrate. I want you to go undercover. And corrupt us. When do I start? It will make us whole. Clean incision. I'll clean up the bleeding. This may be the worst idea I've ever had. Dead Space Deep Cover is available now. New episodes every other week. You can find Dead Space Deep Cover on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at bloody.fm.